All right, so this is our second lesson on discipleship, and we're calling this one Modern Discipleship. And so in order to look at this, we want to understand the history behind discipleship and then how does that apply to where we're at today. So I, I did a bunch of research to find the history of, um, of this concept of the rabbi or the master and the disciple. But let's just jump in here and take a look because I've got about four full pages or so. We've established that true uh, biblical discipleship is not merely sitting in a pew on Sunday morning, listening to the sermon and taking notes. That kind of statement is what set this study off because in our teaching on wisdom for pastors, I made the observation or the comment for pastors, not for sheep, but for pastors to be reminded that even if you have a mega church, a thousand sets of eyes or two thousand sets of eyes staring at you, listening to a 45 minute sermon every Sunday morning does not make them a disciple. And so when I made that statement, some of you were like, wait, wait, so I, I come to church, I'm not a disciple. And that was not my intention, but I guess it uncovered that maybe we have some misunderstandings we want to resolve. So sitting in a pew, even as you're doing right now, is not making you a disciple. Even though you're learning about being a disciple, it is not making you one. Just like you can learn about engineering, but that doesn't make you an engineer. You have to practice engineering to be an engineer. Otherwise, it's just head knowledge. All this exercise has done is communicate knowledge to those hungry enough to pay attention and take notes. You guys right now and in the next sermon, in the next service as we have our Sunday morning sermon, uh, you guys taking notes is really just what is called pastor feeding, teaching and feeding. That's it. If you guys don't take what you're taught and do something with it, it really does nothing. You just take that manna home and it spoils. You take that straw home and it rots. You've got to do something with what you're taught. So the, the, the exercise or the, the practice of coming to church, sitting down and, and listening and taking notes is great, but that has not made you a disciple. And that's what we want to expand upon uh, more powerfully. We saw that over and over again last week's lesson because Jesus Christ preached to multitudes, but they weren't all disciples. The disciples went with him afterwards and kept asking questions. And after they were done asking questions, he'd say, now go do this. So they'd ask questions, then they'd be put to work. And we start to see the pattern of biblical discipleship. Furthermore, if, if, if it was just teaching and taking notes that perfected you, every Christian in a Sunday morning service ought to be a grade A 4.0 sheep. And we know that's not the case either. So the word disciple or methetes is used 269 times in the New Testament. So we have a very strong foundation for the doctrine of disciples. And it means a learner, a pupil, and a disciple. And it's more than just being a student, as we think pupil is classroom, or, or student is maybe classroom, or maybe the professor, student, lecture hall setting. It's more than that, but that's roughly how it can be communicated. The abundant usage of methetes readily indicates to us how important this concept is for the New Testament believer. So we know this is part of our great commission. We go into all the world. We win the lost. And once we've won them or converted them, then we have to begin to disciple them. And if we can truly make disciples, and if you have truly been made a disciple, the odds of you falling away are slim to none. And where the body of Christ fails is that we win the loss, but we don't disciple them. It's like giving birth to a baby, but not raising it. And it takes several years before a baby is even just somewhat self-sufficient. And so it's the same way in the kingdom. That's why the Bible calls them babes in Christ, then little children, then young men. 
It is a growth process. And we'll see some of that in this lesson that it doesn't require hands-on touching, hands-on instruction the entirety of your life. Because if that's the case, how can you ever go on to make your own disciple? But as you grow up, you require less discipleship. You can tell that you need more by how readily you fall apart, how unfaithful you are to church, how often you have to have your spiritual diaper change. Are you able to prepare your own meal? Can you encourage yourself in your own faith yet? If not, you still need heavy discipleship. And so that's kind of, hopefully we're, we'll see how this looks and what this needs to be. The history of discipleship. Let's just read this. I may stop and add a few things. Throughout ancient Greek history, disciples and teachers slash masters. Now we said this is different than kurios, which is Lord or property owner or possessor of people. Though in our English, the word master is also applied to the slave owner. This is master as in <coughs> master of education, master of philosophy, the master of a certain sect of education and knowledge. The, the disciple-master relationship was one unit. One could not exist without the other. If you don't have any pupils, you're not a master. And if you don't have a master, you're not a pupil. The biblical teacher-disciple unit is modeled after the same pattern and involves far more than the traditional classroom student experience. And I, I say that so that we don't hear teacher-student and think reading, writing, arithmetic. We don't think going to the classroom, having Mrs. Henderson for all five periods and taking her an apple every Friday to try to win her approval. That's not what this relationship is expounding upon. It's more than just coming and doing homework, even though I, I clarify that because as Americans, we hear teacher, student, and we think English. We think history. We think social studies. We think trigonometry. And in that American context, you can have a teacher in your life but never have a relationship with them. They only know you as your last name and the grade that they give you on your report card. That is not what we're talking about with this Mathites didaskalos relationship from Greek history and Greek culture. It is a relationship where not just knowledge is communicated but also where tradition, behavior, culture, and values are transmitted. So think about that. In the biblical pattern, the, the, the culture that has been adopted into the Greek New Testament through the Gospels, through the practice of the Lord Jesus Christ, is one of not just classroom teacher and classroom student, but it is one of a relationship where we're not just communicating knowledge, like that's what I'm doing right now, that's what I'll do in the next service, especially as a pastor teacher. I heavily communicate knowledge. It's anointed, and people can be set free from it. But the didaskalos, which is the master teacher, and the methites, which is the disciple, that is a different thing altogether. It's a relationship very much like family because you're communicating culture. You're communicating tradition. You're communicating behavior. You can go to classroom, you can go to trigonometry and get nothing out of that classroom but trigonometry because all you know that, that teacher as is your trigonometry teacher. You don't know what their hobbies are. You don't know how they speak at home. You don't know what their traditions are when it comes to dinner on a Friday night. When you have a true discipler or a master in your life, it's more of a relationship where you're learning how to behave. You're learning how to inherit a different culture than what you were brought up with. 
This may be another reason why in the American church we're rejecting discipleship because we have found no greater God than our personal culture. And one of the necessary ingredients to discipleship is you're willing to change who you are down to your DNA. Amen. We, I wrote about it in that book, Fat, Broken, Crazy, about culture. There's no culture on planet Earth worth defending but the kingdom's culture. And every one of us raised in a home, even in this country, where we are a melting pot. I was raised in Louisiana. They have a very unique culture. Then I was raised in Tennessee, in the hills of East Tennessee, very unique culture. Then Seattle, different culture altogether. And everybody seems to think their culture is the best. And a lot of Americans are heavily resistant to true biblical discipleship because it infringes on the culture they think is superior. And we have to be prepared to let the Lord Jesus totally dismantle our culture. Pastor Akwokwo, one of my dear disciplers and mentors from Nigeria, told me that over and over again. Brother, God is not impressed with your American culture, and he cares nothing about my Nigerian culture. He has given us the kingdom's culture. And that is stuck with me through and through. And that one, that's the exhortation in Titus to confront the Cretans because their culture is that they're evil, they're lazy, and they're slanderous. And he said this, this testimony, and they're liars. He said this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them severely that they might be sound in faith. True biblical discipleship will correct your culture. I, I've been watching the controversy with the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago, and you had two Latinas doing pole dancing on the Super Bowl, and all these Christians have been defending it because it's their culture. It's Latin culture. I said, that doesn't make it right. Who says culture is God? No, culture is subject to change. Amen. You know, this nation used to have a culture of slavery. Did that make it right? No. And Latinas pole dancing in thongs on the national halftime show don't make it right either. I don't care if you're from Puerto Rico or Colombia or Venezuela or Argentina. It doesn't make it right. It makes it vulgar. Amen. All right. True discipleship. You'll not just learn knowledge, but you'll learn biblical tradition, biblical behavior, biblical culture, and biblical values they will be transmitted. In short, true discipleship will automatically build a close relationship between the disciple and the teacher. And that's why I say even there's, there's not a pastor on planet earth that disciples his entire congregation. Because not everybody that comes to even a church of our size, which we are only 200 people, I don't have a relationship with everybody in this church. I, I, folks will leave and I won't even know they're gone if it weren't for the care deacon program we have in place because I have no relationship with them. So all I do is pitch them straw every service, which is I teach the word. According to the ancient Greek culture, to call oneself a disciple is to declare, quote, a direct dependence of the one under instruction upon an authority superior knowledge. So when you call yourself a disciple, according to the Greek tradition, the Greek definition, if you say, I'm a disciple, then you say, I am dependent upon my discipler who is superior to me in his knowledge and understanding or her knowledge and understanding. You, by calling yourself a disciple, you're saying, I'm submitted. That's hard for the American culture because our culture is of one of independence. We have a national day called Independence Day where we demonstrated we were birthed in tyranny. <laughs> and that was a good tyranny. It taught the rest of the world how to throw off colonialism. 
But we'd never kind of brought that thing back to the middle of the, the road. We kept it in the ditch. So we're still saying to people, who do you think you are? Who are you to tell me what to do? I'm an ordained disciple of Jesus Christ, and you are a messed up human being. Please let me help you. I'm doing just fine. Mm, not from where I stand, you're not, no. The concept, excuse me, ancient papyri also uh, has, have also indicated that the mathetes was the equivalent of our modern term, apprentice. So when you call yourself a disciple, according to the Greek context and historical precedent, you're saying, I'm an apprentice. And that, I don't know if that's humbling, if that's hard on pride, but it should also indicate us, to us that we're not to stay an apprentice. Because when you're an apprentice, that indicates you're only there for a couple of years, and then you're, you're promoted up to a journeyman or a sojourner or whatever the different field of study is, master, who knows, whatever your field is that you're apprenticing in. The concepts of disciples and teachers is not present in the Old Testament at all because God revealed himself to be the lawgiver. Not even in the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, you will not find the word methetes or didaskalos at all in any significant reference because the concept of teacher-disciple is not present because the Old Testament had a different objective, which was to reveal God for who he is and that he is supreme, that he gives the word of God. He gives divine revelation. Not even Moses or the prophets were considered to be didaskalos or masters. The term is absent from the Septuagint, as is the Hebrew equivalent. These men were simply mouthpieces. They declared. Now, the only exception I can think of would maybe be the schools of the prophets, which there was no biblical commandment for those things to arise when you get into like First and Second Kings. But nevertheless, we see them mentioned almost like in the background of, of uh, Israel culture, Israelite culture. You talk about that, and they went by the school of the prophets, and there came forth a son of the prophet. But yet those schools of the prophets, you never know who the prophet was over it. And there doesn't ever seem to be anybody significant that came out of the schools of the prophets. It's like they were just hanging out, wanting to learn, but never wanting to do anything. And there's no biblical commandment, no biblical order, no biblical mandate, no prophecy to ever establish the schools of the prophets. It's just kind of like it developed on its own, and you kind of see glimpses of it as you walk through the historical narrative of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Samuel. Most of the kings is where you find it. This changed after the Babylonian captivity. That is the presence or the need for masters and, and uh, students. This changed after the Babylonian captivity when it became very necessary for the Jews to know the law of God. So in Babylon, they're slaves. They're slaves because they didn't know the law of God. They're slaves because they committed whoredoms with idols for a thousand years. And God prophesied in Deuteronomy 28, when you leave me, I will cause you to be slaves in a foreign land. A people you do not know will come and take you, and you'll lose everything I gave you. And they realize in Babylon, oh, this is what Deuteronomy was warning us for, of for a thousand years. We should probably know Deuteronomy. Who, anybody here know Deuteronomy? I know it. Can you teach me? And you see another culture begin to evolve rapidly, ironically, under, Greek, under the Greek empire, under the Greek kingdom. And so what happened was those that gave themselves wholeheartedly to the study of the law, the Torah, and the ancient traditions were called rabbis. This developed in Babylon or Persia. Those who studied under them were called the Talmud or disciples. You have the Talmud, then you have the Talmud. 
The Talmud devoted himself to his rabbi, not only to learn, but also to serve. And that was a critical adjustment. These were not just like the sons of the prophets who just wanted to hang around a prophet. These people actually served their rabbi. And we see that's developing in Babylonian captivity, but that's exactly the pattern we see when Jesus Christ is born into the earth and he becomes known as the rabbi, the master. Discipleship for them was not just learning, it was following and imitating. And this is where we fail in America as well. We don't want to imitate anybody but our favorite social media influencer. Why would you, you'll monkey see, monkey do. Why would you want to be like anybody in the media? Why would you want to be like any sports star? Why would you want to be like anybody who the world thinks is great? Speaking of Pastor Okwoko, we were having dinner when Pastor Okwoko is in heaven now, but we were having dinner at a restaurant that doesn't exist here anymore, Rafferty's, the day Michael Jackson overdosed on fentanyl or whatever. And, and we walked in and it was on the news. And the whole of the world was mourning for this pedophile called Michael Jackson because he could sing and moonwalk. And I remember looking up at up at him, and I said, Pastor Cuoco, I don't, I don't know why the world loved that man. He was a pedophile, and Pastor Cuoco didn't even pay any attention to the TV. He said, son, now he, he always called me brother, brother, even though he's old enough to be my dad. He said, the world loves their own. And that's all he would say about Michael Jackson and the world mourning a pedophile who could moonwalk. Why would we want to be like anybody the world praises? Why would we not want to be like people God praises? Why would we not want to lower our guard, lower our defense mechanism, lower our pride, and be like those God honors and God promotes? It's, you see how messed up we've gotten. We want to be like the world. We want to idolize the world and become like them, but we don't want to look into the church to those that God promotes, that God is using, that have laid down their life, that have suffered loss and injury for the gospel of Christ. We want to be like those going to hell. We want to look like them, talk like them, strut like them, move like them. And it's, a, it's, a, it's blasphemous, honestly. Discipleship was not just learning. It was also following and imitating. The, the imitation was not mere impersonation or mimicry. It was an imitation coming from a changed heart. In Acts, after the resurrection of Christ, they could look at Peter and John, and they could tell by the way they carried themselves at that tribunal, these men had been with that rabbi from Nazareth. It wasn't because they had beards. It wasn't because they wore the same kind of tunic. Because they had adopted his lifestyle and they were representatives of Christ. True discipleship reproduces itself. The result being that true disciples imitate their disciples' doctrine, their disciples' behavior, their disciples' lifestyle, and even their disciples' suffering. And we don't often like that. If you're going to preach like a hard preacher, you're going to get the persecution of a hard preacher. If you're a soft, encouraging, donut-serving, blinking, winking, nodding, seeker-friendly, limp-wristed preacher, you'll have crowds like that ding-a-ling. And maybe that's what you're going for. Amen. Disciples, disciples everywhere. Every human being has been discipled by someone at some point in their life. Whether it be a sports college, uh, that should be coach, sports coach, discipling in the arena of sports or a voice coach or a martial arts instructor. 
even, even a professor, even a teacher. I had teachers in my life that really influenced me, that I really enjoyed their classes. I really enjoyed their perspective. I really enjoyed what they taught. Uh, I probably, even through my colleges, I probably can think of something that was said to me from every one of my professors that I still think about and learn something from. We've all been disciples. In fact, our life is the totality of folks we have sat under. You just got to make sure it's the right influence. We are the totality of the discipleship that has taken place in our life. We all live out a mimicry we've learned somewhere in our past. Whether it's we dress like uh, our favorite sports star did or we dress, or we like to um, drive what we saw a favorite movie star drive. I used to want a BMW because there was a really cool European movie that had a really cool BMW and I just liked the way it looked driving through the streets of Rome. I'm not a BMW guy, but I really liked that movie and I thought I could, I could look just as cool <laughs> speeding down cobblestone streets in Cookville. <laughs> but first we need cobblestone streets in Cookville. <laughs> In the times of Christ, everybody was eager to be discipled. We don't have that much anymore. Honestly, most pastors will tell you, especially in the South, most sheep don't want to be discipled. Most sheep want to disciple the pastor. I could tell you horror stories. I have pastor friends that just looked at their congregation and said, I quit. And they just walked away because of how poorly they were treated by stupid sheep. We don't live like we should. Now, maybe you guys want to be discipled. Maybe other churches are. But honestly, in the South, this culture has arisen where, no, 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 we have a man. We, we hire, we boss him around. He's called the preacher. We're discipling him. We just about got our preacher where we want him. <laughs> like, may lightning strike your church. <laughs> just burn that little country thing to the ground. Hopefully it hits the propane tank and there's nothing but splinters left. Because that's the mindset of that poverty mindset. That's, that's that, no, he's our disciple. We just about get some where we want some. No, that's not how this thing works. But in the times of Christ, even the Pharisees wanted to be disciples. The Pharisees had disciples. The Pharisees considered themselves to be the disciples of Moses. John the Baptist had disciples. Jesus had his 12 disciples, then 70, and then 120 at Pentecost. We pointed that out last week. Jesus was only successful in raising up 120 disciples in three and a half years. And I am no better than my master. Now, hopefully, the things that he did, I can do, and greater still. Maybe I can get to heaven with more than 120. But if you take that interpretation, I think Christ went to heaven and left only 120. Three and a half years of unprecedented power in the earth. Greatest testimony and revival ever. And all it produced was 120, because few be they that enter therein. That's, that's sobering. This means that out of all those, there are only 120 folks hungry enough for God himself. Not hungry for miracles, not hungry for fishes and loaves, not hungry for having their dead raised. Everybody's hungry for that. Hungry just for God. And only 120. Corinth had factitious infighting over who was better based upon their discipleship pedigree. I am of Paul and I am of Apollos, they fought. Everybody wanted to be discipled. Years ago, when the Word of Faith revival was rolling, folks would brag about whether they were of Copeland or Hagen. I'm of Copeland's camp. I'm of Hagen's camp. And I remember Pastor Vaughn said, I'm of both camps. I'm, I'm a uh, Copeland Hagen. 
I'm of the flavor of Copenhagen, which if you say it fast enough, sounds like dip. Chulis tobacco, Copenhagen. He said, I'm of both. I'm Copenhagen. <laughs> it is abundantly evident that Paul had numerous disciples, Silas, Timothy, Titus, Erastus, Epaphroditus, John Mark, Aquila and Priscilla, to name a few. Tychicus is another one. These were his disciples. And I, I've taught in times past and still full hardly believe it. If you were to meet these people, you would be able to smell Paul on them. You'd be able to tell by their teaching style. You sat at the feet of Paul. Paul said, I sat at the feet of Gamaliel. So even Paul had a disciple when he was a Pharisee or a mentor. But these Titus, Erastus, Epaphroditus, these men, and then Priscilla, this woman, you'd have been able to tell you've been trained by Paul. His handprints upon you. His, his style is upon you. His demeanor is upon you. His fire, his passion is upon you. And yet we know Peter and Paul had different flavors. Paul had the grace for the Gentiles. Peter had the grace for the Hebrews. They had different teaching styles, different demeanors. Their epistles are written differently. Peter's disciples would have had his flavor on them. We're living in a day where we don't want to take on anybody's flavor because I just got to be me. Individuality reigns supreme. I wished upon a star and I commanded God to bless it. And who are you to tell me it's wrong? My culture is supreme. You sound like a pagan. Paul said, may I boast of nothing save the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ to whom I've been crucified and the world has been crucified to me. We have no boasting but in the cross, which is execution. Now concerning corporal punishment, Jesus Christ didn't have a problem with it. Neither should we. All right, Aquila and Priscilla, they discipled Apollos. They were discipled by Paul, and then they found Apollos, a man mighty in the Scriptures, but he didn't know the Lord's baptism. He only knew John's, and, and they took him aside, and they made a disciple out of him for themselves, and then he was raised up to be able to help Paul in Corinth. So you see this cool network of discipleship in every direction. And now we live in a day where every Christian is called to make a disciple, and I think we need to focus on that more because most Christians don't realize that, even though we know it's the Great Commission. And so I ask this question here, who can you say you've discipled outside of your own family? Every mother is a natural discipler. She raises her kids to fear God and clean house. But who else? Because there's going to be a co-worker you can disciple. There's going to be a classmate you can disciple. There's going to be someone in the neighborhood, someone you've got to meet at the coffee house or at the workout facility. You ought, you ought to be asking God not just to be disciple, but ask God to give you a disciple. And I, I hate to use the analogy, but I did martial arts for so long and studied four different kinds. The martial arts have got this down pat because you got the third degree, fourth degree black belt who has earned the right to train students, but he doesn't... I don't want to say waste. He doesn't give his time to the white belts. He has underlings that give their time to the white belts because the fourth degree black belt guy, he's working on the first and second degrees to get them to the third and fourth degree. But the first and second degree guys work with the brown belts and the orange belts. And those guys work with the yellow and the oranges and the yellow and the oranges work with the whites. And every once in a while, the fourth degree will come around, look at his class of white belts and just adjust technique ever so subtly from where his underlings had not quite perfected it themselves. And yet, when I did judo and jujitsu and the other arts, the rule of thumb was always you could train those that were under you to bring them up to your position. If I was an orange belt, I could get somebody to an orange belt. I couldn't make them a brown belt because I wasn't one, but I could bring them to my standard, my, my, my level. 
That's how the kingdom is supposed to work. So it, it, you don't have to feel like you've got to know everything to make a disciple. You can grab a pagan tomorrow who knows nothing. You've been saved two weeks. You can bring them along the two-week road you've been on, and you've discipled them a little bit. That's how this is supposed to work. I, again, the American culture is hindering us because we think, I'm the expert. I'm the pastor. Nobody can do the work but me. Nobody can do work but pastor because he knows it all. He's been trained. He's got his license, his ordination. That's not how the kingdom works. And maybe that's a culture in America that's got to be flushed and reassessed. That becomes our entertainment, our spectator, our idolatrous superstardom culture where if they're standing behind a pulpit and we're looking at them, they must be qualified to do all the work, and I cannot do all the work. No pastor can. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said, I have all power and authority. Now you guys go. And then Ephesians 4 says, the apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher, they perfect the saints so they can go. The saints so you've got to begin to ask God for someone you can invest in. It can be a grandchild, a grandson, a granddaughter. It doesn't have to be somebody where you're opening up all your Bible and your commentaries and teaching them. You just bring them along the way and you help them. You pray for them. That's how this thing works. Right now, someone is discipling your children. That's something to consider. Is it you, their friends, or the media? We might even say, is it public school? Whoever has your kid's ear is their discipler. Whoever is doing the talking and the teaching is the discipler. Necessary discipleship attitudes. As with most, most things in life, discipleship is all about attitude. Without the proper attitude, no amount of training or knowledge will bring about a discipled change. Below are good discipleship attitudes. So again, this is what's going to set you apart from a Sunday morning saint and a disciple of Jesus Christ. We might say a disciple of Engrafted Word Church or even a disciple of me, but I'm not the only one who should be discipling you at some point in your life. Here's what we all need to have as, as a disciple of Jesus Christ. This goes to me as a pastor who I am not actively discipled anymore, though Dr. Barclay is my pastor and I have other mentors in the faith I look up to, but they don't call and check on me every day. So this is stuff that even the most mature saint has to have. Number one, you got to have heart. Heart for discipleship. If you don't have heart for discipleship, all you'll ever collect is knowledge. And knowledge is easily collected. You can get it off of the Google. That heart has one simple mantra. I want what they have. If you don't have that heart, you'll never receive any change from someone in your life. When I did martial arts, when I did judo and jujitsu, I could look at Mr. Carter and I could see how good he was at classic judo throws. And I say, I want what he's got. And he's good. So whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to do it because I want to be what he is. Now, he was a practicing Buddhist Catholic, which I have no idea what that was. I didn't want that. I just wanted the stand-up judo skills he had. So in that arena, I would submit to anything you told me to do. When it came to doctrine, I don't care about Confucius, Buddhist, Catholicism. I just want to learn how to throw people. If you don't have that heart, you'll get nothing out of nobody at no time ever. That's a heart of humility. I want what they have. You don't have to understand everything. You just have to want better than you already have. And part of discipleship is you get around somebody who is mopping it up in life. You get around somebody who says, wow, I need to live like they live. I, they got it together, and I don't have it together, and they've got what I need, and I want it. You don't have to get it all. You don't have to understand. By that, I mean you don't have to understand everything. Some folks will only submit when they understand everything, and you never will. 
And nobody you ever submit to will have it all together themselves. They're still being perfected too. As Peter said, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Paul, uh, Peter didn't understand everything, but he did understand that Jesus of Nazareth could help him. The Lord had just, that, that's from John 16, excuse me, John chapter 6. Jesus had just got done preaching this really weird message about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And it freaked out everybody and every disciple. They were called disciples in John 6. Every disciple left him but the twelve. It was a controversial message. Nobody bothered to ask him what he meant by it. What a bunch of idiots. And even when he did kind of explain, the, the, uh, the flesh profiteth nothing. It is a spirit that quickeneth. Except you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. They didn't even bother to hang around to ask for the interpretation. They just abandoned him. And Peter's left there going, I still don't understand what he just said. Are you going to leave me now, Pete? And Peter says, where else would we go? You know, barring this one message, everything you've done so far has been pretty good. <laughs> but those disciples that abandon him are just like your typical Sunday morning only Christian. will see miracles, signs, and wonders, but leave over one misunderstood sermon. What a bunch of shallow people. At least ask the question. You don't have to get it all. You don't have to understand it all. But you just got to want better than what you already are. Number two, you got to have hunger for change. Real disciples want to be different. They're smart enough to realize, I stink at life. I am no good at success, and this person is. If you're, not, if you're happy being the same, you will never seek out change. Hunger for change may be the most necessary attitude of all. Hunger will allow you to endure the harder aspects of discipleship, like correction, rebuke, and inconvenience, because honestly, discipleship will involve correction. It will revolve, involve rebuke. It will involve inconvenience. It will involve disagreement, but when you're hungry, you don't care. When you're hungry, you'll pick that fly out of your soup and keep on eating. When you're hungry, if something weird lands in your latte or something lands in your milkshake, you'll, you'll fish it out with your finger, flick it off, and just go back to eating it. Amen. I mean, if you're hungry, you get to the bottom of your McDonald's milkshake and there's a cockroach, you'll say, praise the Lord, because he's in the... He's in the milkshake cup and not in my stomach. You'll look for the positive side of it. When you're full, you'll throw a fight, a temper tantrum at McDonald's and say, I want to own half of this store now because there's a cockroach in my milkshake. <laughs> Hungry for change. Number three, you got to have humility. This is a necessary discipleship attitude. Every man thinks they're right. Each man thinks they're right in their own eyes. I know, that on a reg I know that I can perceive it on a regular basis when I preach and I, I pick up that I've offended you or you're sitting there in your little stubborn heart going, I disagree with this. I, 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 I. Okay, keep disagreeing. See how that works out for you. Why do you think I said it? Because I said it last service. It rubbed you raw and you came back with the same attitude but worse. I'm going to say it again. <laughs> Amen. Humility. Be up for being wrong. I mean... Would everybody admit they're wrong somewhere? We are. It just isn't where you think you're wrong. Because if you know you're wrong, you make the changes on your own. But you're going to be wrong in places you don't think you're wrong, which is why you've got to have somebody to point it out. And you've got to be open and honest and say, hey, I'm up for being wrong. Just show me. The worst thing you could ever do is silence your critics when you're, most of your critics are people that love you. You have to be open for seeing something from a different perspective than how maybe you were raised or how you were trained or what you're used to. 
Because if you didn't know, the world and the gospel and the kingdom is a lot bigger than how you were raised. Every one of us was raised in a microcosm, whether it was the microcosm of Texas or Cookville or Africa. Everybody was raised in a microcosm with a sliver of a perspective on life. And when all you can ever see is through the sliver, you think that's the entirety of the world at hand. And you have to have that door open so you can see, well, there's a lot wider perspective in this direction and in that direction and that direction and that direction. And then if you go five miles, it changes again. It takes humility to allow your life to be realigned to someone else's. Now, again, you shouldn't submit to everybody, but if God assigns you, you have to trust God. Amen. And if God assigns you, then you can trust that wherever there's friction between where you're assigned, that friction needs to be evaluated to see where you're wrong. Because if you didn't have that friction anywhere else in life and God has brought you someplace, whether it's our church or wherever you're from or under a disciple or a mentor, and being under them and it's an assigned position by God, it's producing friction, and this is the first time you've ever had friction there, you should stop and evaluate it. Maybe God's having mercy on you, giving you another opportunity to get this thing polished. You have to be humble enough to have your life realigned with someone else in that arena. Nobody can perfect you in every area. And we'll get to that here in a second. If I can keep going, i got to go fast. By submitting to a discipler, you allow them to become a template that your life gets cut out to fit. Like the cookie cutter, the cookie template. you got this big ball of dough you've rolled out, and you submit to the gingerbread. Uh, what's that called? Louder? Well, yeah, but the, the template, you know. Cookie cutter, thank you. You submit. You're like, I'm just a ball of dough. And I submit to the Apostle Gingerbread. And by submitting to the Apostle Gingerbread, you allow him or her to come and just slam down on your life and take away all the excess that's not necessary. And now you actually look like something. You represent something. You're observable. You, people can recognize the imprint of something in your life. And that's what we need to be able to submit to. Be cut out to fit a template you've never had before. Thank you. They become your pattern, that discipler, not the standard. Disciplers are not the standard. We make that distinction. Jesus is the standard, but disciplers are living reflections of the standard. We're still being honed ourselves. We always will be. So you got to be humble. Trust. You got to trust that discipler. If God assigned them, you can trust them. You have to trust the person you're submitting your life to. You must trust their knowledge, their ethics, their character, and their track record. Never submit to somebody who doesn't have a track record. Holy smokes. I mean, we got fly-by-nights. You can get your ordination online for 15 bucks now and start a church across the street and register with the... <laughs> Michael's laughing. You know, it's like that way in Africa, man. You just throw up a PA system, preach Malachi 3.10, and make some money. That's all over the world. You, what's your proven track record? Who's your father in the faith? Who's your mentor? Who's your pastor? Who's your discipler? You, you, you trust the proven track record. If there's no track record, they're not ordained of God. And you have to have a contempt for excuses. You, if you're going to be discipled, you can't make excuses. Excuses shortcut discipleship. The Bible reminds us that the blessing is in doing the word. The blessing comes through doing the word, not excusing ourselves from it. So I got this is the most important stuff. I got to go through quick. Discipleship is... Staged 
That is, it has multiple stages. It's multi-mentored, and it's seasonal. And this is where I think I'm going to help some of us who had more deeper questions. Discipleship is not meant to be every day for the rest of your life. If that's the case, you may be the equivalent on someone on life support, someone with special needs, someone in hospice care. If you got to be cared for every day the rest of your life, you have not matured. There's something wrong. If that were the case, how could the Lord expect Christians to make disciples? If we got to be discipled every day the rest of our life, how will I ever be able to go make one when I'm still being one? It's evident from the Great Commission that at some point, Christians are expected to graduate beyond uh, needing regular hands-on training and move on to helping others in the same process. Consider these Bible statistics or biblical facts. Staged, Jesus only discipled the 12 disciples for three and a half years. That was their stage of discipleship. Then he had 70 and 120 that were discipled for less than three and a half years. The 12 disciples became the 12 apostles and were promoted to leading the early church in Acts 1. Once promoted to apostleship, they began making their own disciples and administering the early church. Spending time with Jesus for three and a half years was a stage in their life. But after three and a half years, they were entrusted to be the foundation of the church. It didn't take 20 years. And this is, an, this is a concept we've taught for about a decade around here. It only takes three and a half years to mature. Jesus took salty fishermen, dirty politicians, and tax collectors, and he made apostles of the Lamb out of them in three and a half years. It does not take long to mature in Christ if you want to. If you don't want to, you can be born again 60 years and still be an immature, fearful, insecure babe. It's totally up to you. Discipleship is also multi-mentored. You don't just have one disciple your whole life. Paul was mentored by Ananias in Syria, then Peter, then James, the Lord's brother, and then Barnabas. I, we really think in our backwards understanding, Paul got born again on the road to Damascus and wrote Romans epistle the same day. And that's not what the Bible teaches us. He got born again, and the Lord showed him, you're an idiot. Watch how blind you are. This is how it's going to be the next 14 years of your life, Paul. Someone else is going to have you by the hand. Paul got born again and didn't take his first missionary trip for 14 years. He went to Arabia for two and a half years, studied the Scriptures, spent time with God, sat at Peter's feet, sat at James's feet, joined the church at Antioch, was adopted by Barnabas, served the Antioch church, served the Jerusalem church. And then after 14 years of discipleship, he was preaching every Sabbath, mind you, though, God entrusted him with the missionary ministry. He was further trained by the elders at the Antioch church. He was promoted to early ministry with Barnabas approximately 15 years after his conversion. He did not lead his own ministry for another two to three years after Barnabas departed, at which time he then took Silas and led his own missionary work. Eighteen years before he was in charge, but multiple disciples and mentors in his life. Ever seen that in the Word before? I'm telling you, I grew up Southern Baptist, and we thought Paul got born again on the road to Damascus when he got his eyesight. He got a quill and some papyrus, and he started writing letters to people he'd never met. <laughs> Man, we just don't see the big picture. I think that's the flavor of the day right now. We got to learn to see the bigger picture. Look beyond your weekend. Multi mentored or staged, Timothy was probably converted to Christianity under Paul's ministry during his extensive work in Lystra and Derby in Acts chapter 14. By the time Paul returned to Lystra and Derby in Acts 16, 1, probably two and a half years later, Timothy was being promoted and commended by the brethren 
having evidently been discipled by someone at the church. He had to have been. If he got born again in Acts 14 and come Acts 16, the brethren are saying, this is the best guy we got. And he was a young man. And Paul took him, and he never went home again. Paul took young Timothy under his wing and continues training him for the ministry. And then in continuation of that seasonal, after a certain season of ministry, discipleship, Timothy was ready to be set in as a pastor. So think about this. Timothy is born again in Paul's evangelistic outreach at Lystra and Derby, Acts 14. Two years later, Paul comes back through Lystra and Derby. He's encouraging the saints and establishing them in the gospel of grace. And they say, here's Timothy. We commend him. So Paul takes him. So he leaves one stage of discipleship, which is in the local church. Now he's a traveling servant for Paul. He's getting a whole other stage of discipleship. Because he's serving Paul, he's learning about the cares of the local church, he's learning about apostleship, missionary travels, the hardship of the gospel, something he would not have learned staying in the local church at Derby. And then at some point, Paul looks at him and says, I need to leave you at Ephesus. Now he's ready to be in charge of a church. So he's left at Ephesus to pastor, the, honestly, the strongest and easiest church in all of Paul's missionary travels. He's left there to run things, and after an unknown time, Timothy hit a rough spot and needed more help. This new season of discipleship came in the form of the epistle of 1 Timothy. So now we have another burst of discipleship. When you study 1 Timothy, there's about 20 commandments in Timothy for Timothy, and about half of them involve church governments. The other half encourage and remind him to do what he's been trained to do, which is encourage himself, build himself up, um, establish himself, take heed to himself. So it's about 50-50. 20 commandments approximately. Half of them are Paul telling Timothy how to govern the church at Ephesus. The other 10 commandments are how for, basically reminding Timothy to do what he was taught to do anyway. This was a burst of, of discipleship this pastor needed where he was at. Paul didn't have his hand on him anymore. He had to send it in a letter. And then 2 Timothy is written in uh, 67 AD, uh, 65, 66 AD. It's written one year after 1 Timothy, and it's more discipleship because it's another rough spot. So we see it's seasonal. For me as a pastor, I get around my pastor six or seven times a year. I, I, I was telling somebody the other day, I might get to spend five hours a year with my pastor, five hours just him and I with maybe one or two other people. That's it. Phone calls here. This is the cumulative total of my time with my pastor. But he's able to give me the boost and the burst of correction or wisdom that I need. But here's the critical point of discipleship. If you don't do what you're given, you're sunk. Just like the doctor says, follow this prescription. Come see me in six weeks. He expects you to go home and be a good little disciple of the doctor. Real quick, modern applications. Discipleship is designed to take you from convert to stable Christian in a short time. Its aim is to instill basic doctrine, kingdom culture, work ethic, biblical morality, and a servant's heart. The biblical precedent indicates that it is possible to go from pagan to fledgling minister in three to three and a half years. That's it. The first stage of discipleship will require, first stage, a heart that looks up to someone God has placed in your life, a spiritual mother, mentor, etc., the first stage of discipleship requires a, a regular Bible study in addition to faithful church attendance so you can learn more doctrine, and it will require service in the ministry of helps. Some things can only be learned uh, by doing them. Not all discipleship is learned in the classroom. Jesus Christ said, take my 
burden, my yoke upon you and learn of me. Yokes are for work. So some part of discipleship is actually service. After you've matured and are a stable, dependable, that's a key word, dependable, like you come to every service, you can tell an immature Christian because they don't come to every service. Job aside, sickness aside, some folks just have a habit of missing every, but every service but one. That's not a mature Christian. After you've matured and are stable, a stable, dependable, knowledgeable Christian, you may only require a seasonal discipleship as new situations, battles, or callings arise. This is a seasonal discipleship. So courtship, engagement, and marriage requires a new season of discipleship, frequently called premarital counseling. That could last a couple months going into a marriage. Starting a business, starting a church, or moving to become a missionary would also require another season of intense discipleship. This is a season in addition to your foundational discipleship that brought you up to speed. Terminal diseases, death of a loved one, or divorce would require discipleship because these are emotionally traumatic times. Your emotions are on fire. You can't see which way is up. You don't know how to hire, uh, handle someone being diagnosed with cancer or leukemia or what have you, or someone just passed away and now your world's been turned upside down, or you're going through a divorce. This might require regular Bible study, a prayer, checkups. What do I do now, pastor? What do I do now, mama? Whoever your discipler is, I need help. I'm just, my emotions are on fire. That's an example of a season of discipleship, even when you're mature. Uh, pastor Vaughn went through a church split back in the early 90s. He was going to Nashville every week to talk to his pastor to figure out how to handle things and to not lose his mind. That was a seasoned pastor going to his pastor in a weird season of church turmoil. Any major life transition, such as retirement, having a first child, buying a home, first home, becoming an empty nester would all benefit. Now, I wouldn't say require, but they would all benefit from some form of discipleship because we're transitioning sheep from one stage of life to the next. Life is dynamic. You don't just hit a certain plateau and your life is the same till you die. You have these different stages of having kids and seeing them leave, then marrying them off and having grandkids, then downsizing a home, then cashing out your investments or finding some. It all requires some kind of help along the way. There may also arise a time when you need training in a precise area for which your current discipler is ill-equipped, which time it might be necessary to get wisdom and training from someone else. Multiple mentors would be totally appropriate in scenarios such as praise and worship training, financial training, children's training, evangelistic training, missions training, etc. You don't have to be a minister to require that. Uh, yeah. I go to other ministers who are experts on things that Dr. Barclay is not, and I ask them for their input and their wisdom. And I don't feel like I'm committing adultery on my pastor. I've got, I'm honored to have several mentors in my life that give me their wisdom and their input. Older men of God who will look at me, even women of God, and say, this is wrong, don't do this. I wouldn't do that. And I receive it. Amen. The two most critical keys to being discipled are observing and asking lots of questions. Observe and ask lots of questions. May God help us to both be a disciple and to make disciples. Amen.